Thanks for joining us again at the Canadian Breakpoint, a Canadian infectious diseases podcast by Canadian infectious diseases physicians. I'm Summer Stewart, here with Dr. Rupina Pierwall, Pediatric Infectious Diseases Specialist from Saskatoon. In this episode, we welcome Winnipeg microbiologist Dr. David Alexander to discuss disseminated gonorrhea infections. Dr. Pierwall. Welcome to another episode of our podcast at the Canadian Breakpoint. So today we have a very special guest with us, Dr. David Alexander, who's a PhD trained microbiologist with a long-standing interest in the epidemiology of infectious diseases. For the past 15 years, he has worked in Canada's provincial public health laboratory system. He's currently based in Winnipeg and is an assistant professor with the Department of Medical Microbiology and Infectious Diseases at the University of Manitoba. Dr. Alexander's research encompasses diverse topics, including novel diagnostics, genomics, antibiotic-resistant organisms, and the surveillance of bacterial pathogens that cause foodborne illnesses and sexually transmitted infections. So welcome, Dr. Alexander. Thank you. Thank you for the invitation and the introduction. Perfect. So today we're talking about a very important topic linked to sexually transmitted infections on disseminated gonococcal infections. Um, And congratulations on your uh, recent publication in the Journal of the American Sexually Transmitted uh, Diseases. Um, That's very exciting to see some of your work there. And so I guess before we kind of start talking a little bit about the study and, and all of your research results, why don't we give our audience a bit of a background on gonorrhea, Um, and disseminated gonococcal infections, including presentations. Of course. So gonorrhea is a sexually transmitted infection. It's caused by bacteria, Neisseria gonorrhea, often just called the gonococcus. And in most Western nations, gonorrhea is considered the second most common bacterial sexually transmitted infection, second only to chlamydia. Um, Like most sexually transmitted infections, it most commonly presents either, well, in your bits. So you have uncomfortable urination, dysuria, bleeding. There's lots of wonderful terms for your sexually transmitted infections. Gonorrhea is sometimes called the drip because you just have this discharge that leaks out. And yeah, I guess what, what one thinks of with sexually transmitted infections are infections in the penis or urethra, vagina or cervix, that sort of thing. However, um, the more work you do in the realm of especially gonorrhea, you realize that it will affect a lot of other mucous membranes. So there's been increased recognition of um, proctitis from rectal infections, as well as pharyngitis from throat infections. And that's just really the bacteria will cause symptoms wherever it is introduced. And due to the wonderful and varied ways that people interact with each other and have sex, we see it in all sorts of different places. Um, what was new to me before we really started this study was what's called disseminated gonococcal infection. Mm-hmm. And that is infections that occur inside your body. So systemic presentations where you have the bacteria in your blood or in your joints where they cause arthritis, joint pain. Right. Um, and even there's sort of the worst case scenario is when it can spread and lodge in organs. Uh, we've seen where we are in Manitoba, endocarditis, so heart infection, and even meningitis, brain infection. And that's unusual because even though gonorrhea has a cousin, Neisseria meningitidis, mm-hmm. that causes, as the name suggests, meningitis or brain infection, 
it's it's really uncommon for gonorrhea itself to do that. So definitely, I mean, there's multiple different presentations, as you mentioned, um, and really our focus today on disseminated gonococcal infections, because there hasn't been a lot of research to even my knowledge, or even in our clinical world, you know, identification of such cases, like you mentioned, it's not as commonly spoken about. And so I guess what really sparked your interest in this topic? Well, working in the public health system in Canada, most provincial public health labs basically do province-wide screening for a whole variety of sexually transmitted infections. Right. And that's really where I first encountered all of these diseases is as part of my routine work, looking at the rates of infection. And in the prairies, especially in Canada, the rates of infection are higher than in the rest of Canada. So, yeah, so if you look at the history of sexually infected and sexually transmitted infections in Canada, mm-hmm. there's really like a before HIV and after HIV world. And so um, it's remarkable to think that it's actually been now almost 40 years, like 1983, when the first tests for HIV really became available and, you know, the AIDS epidemic was recognized and there was this big push towards safer sex and all these other things that you're of a certain age you grew up with, yeah, during the 80s and especially during the 90s. And these campaigns were really, really effective. And we right. saw plummeting rates of all sorts of diseases. Of course, HIV was the primary one because at the time it was a death sentence. And so you definitely didn't want to get HIV. Right. But the same precautions work against syphilis, which was came close to elimination and really dropped the rates of gonorrhea and chlamydia. So if you look at data that's available from, for example, the Public Health Agency of Canada, mm-hmm. the rate of gonorrhea in the you know, by about the year 2000 was maybe 25 cases per 100,000 people. So quite, quite low. By contrast, in Manitoba right now, we're about 10 times that, about 250 cases per 100,000. And what's remarkable is that most of that increase has happened in the last, well, really about since 2015, so the last five to 10 years is really when that rate has gone up. And we're not really sure why. We we assume it has to do with changing behaviors and perhaps less concern because even for HIV now, there's very effective treatment, so it's no longer death sentence. And certainly for things like gonorrhea, given an uncomplicated case, it's currently we just use two drugs and one dose of each of those drugs and you're, you're pretty much cured. So anyways, suffice to say, when it comes to disseminated gonorrhea, if you look at historical literature, Mm-hmm. Um, they would argue that two to three percent of cases might present as a disseminated infection. So in your blood with arthritis, it's been difficult to actually figure out that exact number mm-hmm. or that portion. But, you know, if you're only seeing a thousand cases of gonorrhea a year and your DGI rate is two or three percent, you don't see very many of these cases, even if you're a practicing clinician. Whereas as soon as your rate of gonorrhea goes up, you expect to see more. But what we've really been concerned about and what started some of the research we're going to talk about has to do with the rate of the disseminated infection went up at a much faster rate, about three times faster than the overall rate of gonococcal infection. Okay. I guess the one thing you say about disseminated gonorrhea is if you look through the microbiology literature, 
there's lots and lots of reports, lots and lots of case reports, and they always say, oh, this is a rare presentation of gonorrhea. Right. But when you add up all these reports, it's actually not quite as uncommon as one would think. And so that's the other question that dogs are research is, is the uh, increase we're seeing just due to increased awareness that these infections can right. occur. Yeah, yeah. So definitely having, you know, this on your radar as a clinician, I think you're more inclined to kind of look for infections. Um, you're, you're more inclined to send cultures. And I think we'll talk a little bit about that in your study as well as to how much is done, you know, diagnosed with PCR versus culture, um, which is sometimes a limitation when we're dealing with sexually transmitted infections. Yeah, so I guess without further ado, because I'm excited to hear a little bit more about your research, um, why don't we introduce your, you know, some of your research findings and talk a little bit about your abstract in the paper? Okay, so I should start by saying that this research project's been going on for a while, and it's it's gone through several stages. So, yeah. really, our initial interest was because, you know, 15 years ago, disseminated gonorrhea was very uncommon we would we the lab even though it screens you know tens of thousands of people per year and detects several thousand cases per year mm -hmm. disseminated gonococcal infections were very very rare we would see maybe maybe two or three a year and some years there were none and then yeah. as i mentioned the rate of that started going up it was you know a dozen and then two dozen and three dozen a year so it really caught our attention mm -hmm. and we were also getting contacted by physicians who were struggling to get a clear diagnosis. Because this is a sexually transmitted infection, the approved normal commercial and Health Canada approved tests geared right. towards things like endocervical swabs or urine samples, you know, things you normally would associate with sexually transmitted infection. Right. But what was happening is these folks were showing up in a in the ER complaining about a sore elbow or a sore knee and, you know, you don't immediately think, oh, it must be a sexually transmitted infection if it's in your elbow or knee. So often in those cases, you would get a joint fluid draw, so you could draw a culture to see if you could grow other organisms associated with those sorts of infections, your skin floor, like your strep and your staph and that sort of thing. Mm -hmm. But Neisseria gonorrhea is actually a tricky organism to grow, and unless you're using the right media, Mm -hmm. You're not going to catch it. And even if you are using the right media, you may not catch it all the time. And so right. we were being asked, are there better ways to diagnose this? And initially, mm -hmm. we really weren't sure. Our standard method for diagnosing gonorrhea uses nucleic acid amplification. So think of like a PCR type test where you're detecting the nucleic acid from the organism itself. Mm -hmm. And not you don't have to actually grow the bug. Nucleic acid amplification for this or gonorrhea was in, introduced probably about 15 years ago and is universally used now because it is it is so good. Mm -hmm. And really, when it was first introduced, there was a bump in the rate of gonorrhea, not because there was more gonorrhea around, but we were just so much better at detecting it. And even though it was initially designed for you know urine or endocervical and vaginal swabs, the the standard tests we use have been expanded to include rectal swabs and throat swabs. And so mm -hmm. we were thinking, well, if we're now finding this more commonly in joint fluid, why don't we just test the joint fluid? 
And so yeah. we we did a study where we took about 170 samples collected over several months. And after they'd been fully worked up by our routine microbiology procedures, with microscopes, and culture, and that sort of thing, we yeah. retested them using the nucleic acid amplification test. And um, we're quite surprised to see that of the, you know, even though we did grow a few samples by culture, mm -hmm. uh, culture only detected about 40% of the samples <clears throat> that were positive by nucleic acid amplification. Yeah, I mean, it wasn't it wasn't a huge study, but we did test 170 samples mm -hmm. um, of joint fluid, and we're really relieved to find how well our tests performed um, on the joint fluid samples, even though it wasn't a test necessarily designed for that. And so, yeah, if you want our actual numbers from there, five samples grew, or we grew Neisseria from five cultures, but there were actually 14 that were positive by nucleic acid amplification. Okay. And when we had an external lab um, retest some of those samples just to confirm our results, they, mm -hmm. they did confirm those results. Basically, this means that this is not an illusion. There really is a lot more disseminated gonorrhea out there than we were expecting. So that's really the first step is if you're going to look at infectious diseases, you need a test that will detect them. The, the next part we've moved into is really trying to understand, is there something special about the bacteria mm -hmm. that cause these diseases relative to what's normally circulating in where you are? Because mm -hmm. um, that's always the question when it comes to infectious diseases. Is it something about the bug or is it something about the host? And of course, there's all these reasons why some people may be more susceptible to infection than others. And really, when we started this work, I thought, well, it's, we're probably just looking at a population that is more susceptible or there's don't have access to healthcare, or whatever reason for which you wouldn't necessarily get treated right away and the, the gonorrhea would have time to, to spread. And so to address that component of the question, we use genome sequencing. I say that casually, but it's really taken a long time yeah, definitely. <laughs> for genome sequencing technologies to really come to where they are today. Yes. Um, I've been lucky enough to be involved with sequencing-based approaches for a, for a while now, and yeah. the power that they provide is, is really quite, quite remarkable. Because unfortunately, we've had so many um, cases lately, and we've been able to isolate so many strains of gonorrhea, we really were able to uh, do a pretty decent sized project and sequence about 100 strains, all from joints and blood sites. So all just associated with disseminated gonorrhea. And so what we discovered when we sequenced them all and looked at them, they were more similar than we expected. Normally, what happens with strains of any bacteria, if you take the time to what's called type them and look at the differences between them, you see all sorts of different types. I think people have sort of started to recognize this with COVID, where every few months there seems to be a new type of COVID, an alpha or a delta or a right. different kinds of Omicron. And so there's this constant change in what the bacteria or the microbes look like. And yet when we looked at our gonorrhea strains, we only found five different types, even though we know that there are dozens, if not hundreds of different types of gonorrhea out there. Right. More than that, um, when we looked at these five types, they all shared something called poor, the poor B type. So poor B, it used to be called letter membrane protein one. It's, it's basically a marker 
that we use when typing. And it's a really effective marker for typing because it has that perfect balance of it's something that every every gonorrhea strain has. It's essential enough to the organism that it it changes that that it's always going to be there, but it also can change. And so mm-hmm. it, and it's the changes within between strains that we're actually looking at when we're typing organisms. So I don't want to get too technical, but the but the poor type we found is called poor twenty two oh six. And it was found in all five of the different, I guess, flavors or strains of gonorrhea that we were looking at. And it was present in, you know, over 90% of the strains that we that we actually did sequence. Now, that's unusual because when we looked at sort of a, a comparator group of strains in Canada that don't cause disseminated infection, mm-hmm. Orbi is present in maybe 2% of those. So even though it's only present in maybe 2% of what's out there in the world, it was in over 90% of the strains associated with disseminated um, yeah. gonorrhea. And that was a big surprise to me because I really thought it was uh, it was probably a host-associated factor because we know yeah. in other sexually transmitted infections, it's individual behavior or susceptibilities or things like that that predispose you to infections and then some kind nasty infection. And right. that's not the case with gonorrhea. Yeah, I was actually surprised to see that as well. I mean, like classically, what we learn, you know, in med school and also kind of when we're training is to like when there are Neisseria infections that are ongoing or persistent or recurrent Neisseria types of infections, then usually host factors like complement deficiencies or if they're on certain immune suppressive drugs, um, those are the kind of areas that we focus on then likely, you know, the patient might have this. That's why they presented very severe uh, with this, but I think it's always two-sided and it's similar to how you mentioned with, you know, we've seen this with other infections, including COVID itself. We've seen very severe presentations, milder presentations. Sometimes it's host related, sometimes it's incidental. And so, but I think looking at the molecular level especially with gonorrhea here, um, you know, identifying a specific allele like this that is coming from 90% of your samples, I mean, definitely has a a correlation with that severity. So that was a, yeah, very interesting finding for myself as well. So of course, when you have a finding like this, you go back to the literature to see what else other people have seen. And in retrospect, we shouldn't have been quite so surprised because this 4B allele has been associated with infections for a while. And we live in an era of molecular diagnostics and genomics and all this exciting stuff where sometimes we almost forget to look at the organism. We're just focused on the ACs and Ts and Gs on our computer screen. (laughs) But um, (laughs) if, if you actually go back to the bench or go back to sort of the classical microbiology where folks are growing strains and really looking at them, it turns out that for you know decades now, it's been recognized that gonococcal isolates from disseminated infections actually are quite different from the run-of-the-mill things you typically see with an, what's called uncomplicated sexually transmitted infections. And so, so we're continuing to look and try to correlate some of these old phenotypic findings with what we can see in the genomics. And we know some are quite well characterized. For example, when you grow the disseminated strains on, you know, your agar plates that you see, and normally they have what's called a transparent 
colony phenotype. They're sort of clear. They're not sort of a solid, okay. dark, opaque color. Okay. And originally, that phenotype was called opacity. Mm -hmm. And so there's actually a protein called the OPA proteins that are now known to coat the outside of gonorrhea and the change how the organism interacts with your immune system. Um, yeah. Or B, which we've been focused on, is also something that's in the cell wall or the outer membrane of the of the bacteria and interacts with the immune system. And studies of 4B have kind of revealed that it is actually able to interact with the complement system, which is something you mentioned. And so, right. I mean, briefly, I'm not I'm not an immunologist, but uh, <laughs> neither uh, am I. So it's good. <laughs> but the complement system is part of your sort of innate immune system. If it sees a foreign invader, it basically mm -hmm. targets that invader to be uh, cleaned up by other components of the immune system. So it sort of right. tags or targets you and says, get rid of this thing. And what what happens with gonorrhea, in part due, we think, to the 4B system, is that it it basically shuts that down. It, it pulls this Jedi mind trick where it's like, oh, I'm not what you're looking for. Basically downregulates the um, complement system so it's no longer being targeted. And the reason right, that's right. probably important is, you know, at, at the at the time the gonorrhea is doing this, it's already in your blood. It's already circulating through your system. Right. It can stop your immune system from taking it out. It gets that much more time to persist in your blood and to spread to your organs, be it your joints or your heart or wherever else it needs to go. And when yeah. you look at the disseminated gonorrhea literature, all sorts of sites can be acted wherever this organism lands. Yeah, and most commonly in your guys' study, um, the isolates were blood and synovial fluid. Mm -hmm. um, and was that specifically because that's where the, the isolates that were submitted or just so, with correlation with the clinical presentations? Yeah, so in our case, we, we can only do the genome sequencing on organisms that we have actually isolated and cultured and right. grown in the lab. And although we did have some cases with other, where the gonorrhea was in other sites, we had a lot more trouble growing it out of those sites. So, for example, we had some heart tissue that we knew was positive for gonorrhea right. using molecular tests, but we weren't able to actually grow the gonorrhea from those sites. Um, in at least one case, we had blood from that same individual, and we could grow the gonorrhea from the blood. We just didn't grow it. Mm. No, it's quite interesting. You know, it's tricky. Gonorrhea is a tricky pathogen for sure. For that, yeah. 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 So the, the only silver lining to a lot of these cases, though, and again, this is something that was noted in the older literature, but also confirmed in our study, is that these bugs are not particularly drug resistant. They can still all be treated using common course of antibiotics. The only catch is, as you might imagine, by the time you know gonorrhea is circulating in your in your blood or mm -hmm. other organs, um, treatment is a lot longer. So it takes a week to four weeks to treat it rather than a single dose of a couple drugs. And so that's, right. that's one reason why it, it's great if you could do regular screening for gonorrhea. And even if you're not thinking STIs, if somebody is you know sexually active or is with new partners or might have been exposed to, to, do, a, to do a screen for whatever STIs are out there. Because mm -hmm. um, that's the other trick about a lot of these organisms is their infection is often asymptomatic. And that's why we've changed our terms. It's no longer sexually transmitted diseases, but sexually transmitted infections, because right. you can be having the disease actually present. Yeah. 
Exactly. No, I think you mentioned a really good point there in terms of, you know, clinical presentations, because clinically, a lot of times, you know, you're, you're thinking about sexually transmitted diseases in, in patients, but then all the testing doesn't get done or, you know, clinical picture doesn't fit. Um, and so, and, and then you lose them to contact or follow up and, and, and all of that combined, they can present with like a disseminated infection. So I think for clinicians out there, you know, having your work and, you know, some of these findings being published, I think helps because people are then becoming more aware of a situation that can present like disseminated gonorrhea. And so really keeping in mind that that can be a presentation if somebody presents with, you know, a joint infection, because typically that's not the first thing people think about when they're thinking about STIs. So. So our work still leaves a whole lot of unanswered questions. We're still going through our genome data sets to figure out and um, what other virulence factors are probably present in these organisms. And there's got to be some, but finding the right tests and methods to evaluate those is tricky. The other question too is that the strains we're seeing, they're not exclusive to disseminated infections. They're also out there circulating, causing uncomplicated infections. And so there's a whole other avenue of study that we're just trying to wrap our heads around about, you know, maybe it's not exclusively something that's special that these disseminated strains have, it might be something mm-hmm. that's absent from other strains that prevents them or limits them from causing disseminated infections. So there's a whole other yeah. set of uh, questions out there. For sure. And one other one we're wondering about is, does the root of infection matter? Is there mm-hmm. something else going on there? And again, this is purely speculation, but we're almost wondering if oral pharyngeal exposure from oral sex or something like that might predispose you to disseminated infections just because folks often won't get tested for pharyngeal infections. They may not be picked up. And there's also some fascinating work being done on the natural history of um, infections that suggests that throat infections will clear up on their own often within three or four months. And so you may be infected, never, never treated, and yet over the time that you have this infection, and maybe just like a little bit of a sore throat, Mm-hmm. You know, has many, many causes, especially during winter respiratory season. Right. It, has, it gives a chance for the organism to get into your bloodstream. And, and there. But okay. again, those studies are very, very difficult to set up and look at because of all the stigma around studying sex and sexually transmitted mm-hmm. infections and just the logistics of separating people who may only engage in oral sex versus other forms. Of sex. Right. No, that's fair. Yeah. So in terms of, um, I guess you answered a couple of these questions already, but why yeah. is Manitoba or why was it speculated specifically Manitoba seeing these? And I, I know you mentioned, you know, host factors. We talked about um, specific areas that we normally see more sexually transmitted infections. I think the Prairie provinces do have higher incidences of that in Canada, um, as we've seen with our syphilis rates as well even here locally in Saskatchewan, but is there another speculation as to, or in your literature search, because I definitely didn't, um, you know, review the literature in disseminated gonorrhea to see what Saskatchewan or Alberta was seeing. Um, was there mention of other provinces having an increase in disseminated gonorrhea as well? So it's hard to say specifically for disseminated gonorrhea in Canada, because it is a subject that's understudied at this point, but yeah. we do know that in the U.S. there's been publications from several states who are seeing similar trends. 
Um, and again, we're not sure at this point if it has something to do with a change in the circulating strain mm -hmm. or if it's just related to overall across the Western world, there's an increase in uh, sexually transmitted infections. Again, I mean, it's it's been 40 years since the HIV scare and for the past 20 years, Canada's been seeing an increase in sexually transmitted infections of all kinds. So we might just have hit that critical threshold where everyone is seeing more of these or at least recognizing more of these infections. Right. There's really not anything special about Manitoba except for the fact that, um, and this is also true for Saskatchewan, because mm -hmm. we are smaller provinces, we're able to do more comprehensive surveillance for all infectious diseases. Right. Uh, we have laboratory capacity to do the testing. And so... For example, the amount of gonorrhea and chlamydia testing we do in Manitoba works out to be about one sample for every 10 people. So if you're if you're sampling, it's, it's not exactly 10% of the population we're, we're testing. If you're looking at a, a significant pr proportion of the population every year for a given disease, you're going to be able to find that and also have very, very good year-to-year -year surveillance. So right. what are, you know, in the grand scheme, relatively subtle differences? Plus, yeah. we've been interested to some extent in sexually transmitted diseases in Manitoba for for a while, just because we are concerned about the growing rates of everything. But again, this is not uh, unique to us. That's seen across North America and especially also in, in Alberta. They've been doing um, very good surveillance and reporting on increases in sexually transmitted infections. Yeah. Yeah. The other thing, too, is just the changing technology makes these studies more and more available. And in Manitoba, uh, we're lucky enough to have the Federal National Microbiology Lab. And I should really mm -hmm. say that none of the work we've done here would have been possible without um, their, their gonococcal and streptococcus unit. Um, Irene Martin at the National Microbiology Lab has been working on this subject for, well, a very long time and yeah. has also had a longstanding interest in the typing of gonorrhea for surveillance purposes. And so that's one of the, that was one of the early clues was that we were seeing the same molecular type over and over and over again. And mm -hmm. really what the genomics has allowed us to do is, is take a much deeper dive into not only the, the handful of targets that are used for routine typing of gonorrhea, but the entire genome and the entire contingent of virulence factors and other things that are, that are in a gonorrhea genome. And so mm -hmm. we continue to work with her group to dig deeper into this. Right. The other thing we are also working with with some of our clinical colleagues is to get a better sense of who our patient population is. There still might mm -hmm. be something about um, the, you know, the patients who are presenting with gonorrhea. And a lot of that work is, a, is really just starting. But we already know, anecdotally at least, that in a lot of cases, these folks did not have gonorrhea. They were not positive at the routine sites. They didn't have positive urine. They didn't have positive endocervical swabs. So really mm -hmm. the joint infection was their first presentation. And that's why it's also good to raise awareness that, you know, if you're if you're not a microbiologist right. or someone who specializes in infectious diseases and somebody who's in their twenties, otherwise healthy, doesn't really have risk factors for acute onset arthritis. Think about doing a sexually transmitted infection screen, or if you're, you know, if you're going to draw some joint fluid for culture and routine testing, maybe say, hey, could you query gonorrhea on this test? There, there seems to be a lot more of it out there. 
you know, in in some of the publications from the U.S., they are clearly seeing overlap with disseminated gonorrhea and other kinds of sexually transmitted infections, especially syphilis or HIV, that may be associated with injection drug use or riskier habits or behaviors. But again, in in our disseminated gonorrhea population, we're not seeing that. These are these are folks who don't seem to have other risk factors, which is also an indication that there may be something about the strain they've just encountered a a gonorrhea strain that is nastier than most, something that can happen to anyone. Yeah. Yeah. And I think you bring a good point about, I mean, this, the presentation of, especially like what I've seen from like a a joint that's infected with gonorrhea. I mean, it looks very similar to other bacterial and, you know, septic arthritis where it's this hot, swollen, tender, joint. So sometimes it can be overlooked that, okay, you know, our most common bacteria like staph and strep species that would cause like a septic arthritis um, being higher on the list, but then looking at the population, I think is really important, right? So I'm a pediatric infectious disease specialist. So for me in my world, you know, sometimes until I don't see adolescent patients, that's when we start thinking more about STI screening and that type of thing. Um, And obviously one-off cases, uh, in, in younger populations. But I think for some of our clinicians out there who are, you know, family physicians and um, practicing adult medicine really should be um, keeping in mind that uh, that gonorrhea can have such a presentation as well and sending off the right testing. So in terms of, I guess, what's the future? <laughs> can you predict the future for us, Dr. Alexander? <laughs> what well, are we going to see? <laughs> I will not even attempt to predict the future, but I mean, I guess now that this is on our radar, it's something that yeah. we will continue to monitor uh, and we're continue to study. We'd like to better understand the sort of the mechanics of how all of this works. Now that we have some targets from our genomic studies to go back to the lab bench and see if we can tease it apart a bit more and, and understand the mechanisms that work behind this. Yeah. And as I mentioned, we're also very curious about um, taking a closer look at mm-hmm. who gets disseminated gonorrhea. I mean, there are um, complement disorders in individuals that may predispose in these sorts of infections. And so that might be something that one might need to screen for if if you present with disseminated gonorrhea, well, maybe we should look at this because if you have an immune defect, there might be other implications for your own health and well-being and, you know, precautions you might take in the future. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I think for some of our audience who, who are very clinical or, you know, that's like clinicians that are seeing this, you did mention that resistance it was not a factor seen in your guys' isolates. Do we, so obviously anticipating that in the future, um, you know, at this time right now, we're seeing our conventional antibiotics, which usually the cephalosporins is is our mainstay of therapy still for gonococcal infections. Um, exactly. And so kind of going forward, is that something that you guys will keep kind of surveillance on? for future isolates in terms of like developing if there if there is a chance for resistance development? Yeah, so that's something that most Canadian provincial public health labs do is if they have an isolate, they will do susceptibility testing. And right. again, the Public Health Agency of Canada does annual reports to describe changing trends in antibiotic resistance for gonorrhea as well as other organisms, because it's, it's definitely something we need we need to monitor. And we know yeah. there are some nasty drug resistant strain out there. So yeah. 
And I think you did mention this in terms of diagnostics. So at this time, so, I mean, based off of your study, you guys were able to do PCR and molecular methods from other sites, right? Like synovial fluid and your other isolates. So is that something that is available for North Americans or Canadians? So there are, so that's the other thing is there are no Health Canada approved diagnostic tests for disseminated gonorrhea infections, but it's, yeah. we have a lot of really good laboratorians in the, you know, in Canada mm-hmm. and they have the ability to validate these tests on their own and to offer them where required. Okay. Um, similarly, um, again, in part due to genomics and other advances in molecular techniques, uh, we're looking at ways to generate a antimicrobial susceptibility profile or at least identify resistant genes, mm-hmm. even in the absence of having a clinical isolate to work with. But a lot of that is still very at the research and development stage and not widely available. But it's something that, you know, a, a lot of microbiology groups are, are moving towards is to being able to detect resistance without actually having an isolate. So as long as you have a positive sample, you mm-hmm. can do that extra work to type strains for surveillance, to look at antimicrobial susceptibility, to help inform treatments, and really to provide the best care you can, even in the absence of a isolate. Because, you know, there's a lot of bugs out there that you still can't grow. You can't. You can't culture syphilis, for example. Yeah. Or and even, you know, even uh, Borrelia for Lyme disease. Uh, mm-hmm. A lot of those diagnoses, you rarely, rarely isolate the organism itself. You have to go off of other things. Oh, that's fair. Yeah. So I guess some of the take-home points that I got from uh, this great conversation today about dysenteric gonorrhea is that obviously we should be aware that. DGI disseminated gonococcal infections are on the rise that we should, as especially as clinicians, be identifying cases, um, probably speaking with our local microbiologists and our laboratory uh, staff members to kind of make them aware that we're suspicious that this could be a case of that. And, you know, if whether we could validate some of the, some of the molecular methods uh, for certain samples, and then also, you know, attempt to grow in culture, um, I think that would be ideal. Um, but definitely, I think just keeping it on our radar that, you know, it doesn't have to present only as a, you know, as a common site for sexually transmitted infections or symptoms don't have to be quite classic, they can present with joint infections and others, other areas for sure. And that we, we should, we should be testing for it, we should be looking for it. And we should, um, obviously, from a clinical standpoint, treatment varies too. then, right? Like we talked about duration is longer, we are thinking about disseminated infections. So um, is there any other points that you would like to highlight for our audience today? In terms uh, of disseminated gonococcal infections? Not really. It's just great to have a chance to get the word out there. And yeah, there are clear guidelines and recommendations for diagnosis and treatment of disseminated infections. Where possible, if you can um, work with your local infectious disease docs and provincial public health labs to grow or investigate these cases, I think just documenting that they're out there and that they're not as, as rare as one would think is a great first step. Yeah. And it's exciting that we have such a great team out in Manitoba and, you know, with the National Microlab as well to be able to identify some of these cases, do future research. Um, I think it, it, it it's actually, um, you know, great to have such a center that can, 
you know, actually has the resources and the ability to um, probably even, I mean, helps all the rest of us in Canada as well. So we're quite grateful for that as well. So well, thank thing you. I like about Manitoba is we're small but mighty. <laughs> well said. <laughs> <laughs> That's great. Well, thank you so much, Dr. Alexander, for coming on today's episode. I think our audience is uh, quite grateful. I've had a lot of requests, actually, for this episode, um, because there are adult physicians, especially my adult colleagues that are seeing disseminated gonococcal infections. And so I think just to hear a little bit about what research is ongoing and, you know, things to look for, I think definitely it's always refreshing to have uh, somebody who who's doing the actual work in the labs to to come and you know give us that insight. So we're really appreciative. Thanks for the chance. All right. Well, take care and thank you so much for coming on the episode. Thank you, Dr. Pierwall, and thank you, Dr. Alexander, for joining us. This concludes our first season of the Canadian Breakpoint, and thank you, listeners, for making it a success. We look forward to bringing you exciting new topics in 2023. Have a topic suggestion? Email us at thecanadianbreakpoint at gmail.com and follow us on Twitter at CA Breakpoint. Have the happiest of holidays and see you in 2023 at the Canadian Breakpoint.